Uh, if you want to, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 29 uh, in your Bible. I, I really hope uh, whenever Ronald does these classes, he does such a great job with the Psalms, and I know that one of these times I'm going to miss it, and I'm going to do one that he already did, in which case, forgive me, but uh, hopefully even if we did that, we could come from different angles enough that uh, we could keep learning something from the text. But if I'm right, uh, we're going to be doing Psalm 29 tonight and looking at uh, some of the the things that we can learn from it. But first, let's go ahead and read it uh, through in its entirety. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. When we look at the Psalms, a whole lot of them, and I think Ronald's hit this point well, are, are very human in nature. There are, there are sections of the Bible um, that are very human, where we see people kind of as they are. We see them with their struggles and with their weaknesses. And I think the Psalms really embody that, that they're deeply human. Now, are they inspired by God? Absolutely. Are they the Word of God? Yes, they are. But at the same time, the truths that we see in the Psalms, a lot of times they reflect you know, the human condition, if I could call it that, or, or the human experience, the, the weaknesses and the struggles of, of fallible, mortal, distressed, often, human beings. And, and we get a lot of that from the Psalms. But when we think about Psalm chapter 29, humans, you and I, we are not the main focus of the 29th Psalm. The focus of Psalm 29 is really borne out in what I think is its most defining literary feature. Now, when I say defining literary feature, this is what I mean. If you look at a work of poetry, a lot of times it will have some kind of feature that defines its style. Here's an easy one. What is the defining feature of a Dr. Seuss book? It rhymes, right? It doesn't just rhyme. Like, I can make a rhyme. That guy could really make a rhyme, right? He could make words rhyme that I've never even heard of before. So the defining feature of Dr. Seuss uh, is rhyming, right? Uh, has anybody ever heard the song or the poem, A Sailor Went to Sea? Has anybody ever heard that one before? What's the defining feature of that one? A sailor went to... CCC, to see what he could, but all he could was the bottom of the deep blue. Exactly, right? What's the defining feature of that one? Every line ends with CCC, right? So when we look at poems or songs or poetry, a lot of times they'll have this defining feature. Well, if you looked at Psalm 29, and you could honestly do this in your Bible, one thing is going to stand out of Psalm 29 above all else. It's something that's repeated over and over and over again. And I just wonder, does anybody see it? Does anybody see what's repeated over and over and over again in Psalm 29? The Lord. The Lord is repeated over and over and over again. In fact, in your Bible, you will see the word Lord 18 times 
in the span of Psalm 29, and it only has 11 verses. So you're seeing this 18 times, more than once per verse in, in some occasions in this chapter. And so the, the word Lord shows up. That is the defining feature. Now, not just the word Lord, but we would call it the name of the Lord. And again, this is one of those things that I'm sure that, that most people in here know, but if you're like me, uh, and sometimes you go a long time without being clued in to pretty obvious and important information, things like that happen to me a lot, so I'm going to mention it. When you see the word Lord in your Bible, as you would see it on the screen here, give unto the Lord, all four capitals, what you are seeing is representative of something called the Tetragrammaton. And, and that in Hebrew, in the original language, were four Hebrew letters that were used to represent the name of God. This was the covenant name of God with his people. Um, and this is usually translated in English letters to YH. W-H, or maybe V-H, which has traditionally been given vowels to become Yahweh, right? The, the covenant name of God is Yahweh. So whenever you see Lord in all four caps in your Bible, that is a specific thing. That's not just the word Lord meaning someone with authority, uh, someone who is over you. That is literally the name of God that we see given there. And that, again, uh, is Yahweh, or that's also where we get the name Jehovah from. comes from the same base there. Um, we sometimes view words like God and Lord in a very general sense, right? When we're, when we're in this building and we say God, we all know who we're talking about. Or if someone out there says, you know, I pray the Lord has mercy on them, no one questions, well, which Lord are you talking about? We all know that they're referring to Jesus Christ. But th this wasn't always true. It wasn't always true that there was this general sense of God and Lord because what we see in the Old Testament is that God is a named God. God has a name. He's not just called God. He's not just called a God or a spiritual being. When he sends Moses as a messenger to the Israelites, the Israelites are stuck in slavery in Egypt, and he's going to deliver Moses, and he says, deliver this address to them in the name of God, and he gives him his name. Look at Exodus chapter 3 verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? Now, again, that's odd, but what they're saying is we have served multiple gods in Egypt. There's all kinds of gods that we've grown up around. So you're telling us the God of our fathers, and we ask what? Which one? What's his name? Which God is this? And he says, when they ask this, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God, or we could say Yahweh of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Now go on to Exodus chapter 6. This is really interesting what Moses uh, and God have this conversation here. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, Lord, I was not known to them. So God said, they knew me and they walked with me, but this is something I am just now revealing about myself. Now, this is one feature of God that we see in the Bible. We know that God doesn't change. So God didn't get a name change and say, well, I'm going to go by something different now. 
God has always been Yahweh, but God can progressively reveal things about himself throughout the Bible. So God is always the same, but we don't always know everything about him until he reveals it to us, because how else would we know? But in this case, God goes on from this verse in Exodus, and he says, this name is tied to my covenant. It's tied to me being faithful to my covenant. The Lord, the name of God, will bring you out of Egypt. The Lord will keep his promises that he made to the patriarchs and the fathers. I am the Lord. That's how he ends it. I am Yahweh. This is what I will do. Now, again, this is important because our context is one thing today. In the context of the world that we live in, the debate is between philosophers and theologians about the question of, is there even a God, right? Is there some kind of God out there? That is what is debated today. And the vast majority of the world says what? No, there's no God. There's nothing supernatural. There's no spiritual force at work outside of what we see with our eyes. And so the choices are some sort of theism. There's something out there. And atheism, right? That there's absolutely nothing. The absence of any divine power. But that was not the debate of the Old Testament days. This was not the debate of the times of, of Moses, of the times of David. Everyone was a theist of some kind, right? Because every nation had what? Their own God. They had their own God. They had their own you know, person, a spiritual being in their estimation that they would have served. And so it wasn't a question, do you believe in God? The question was, what kind of God is your God? What kind of God do you serve? There's a story that we read about. Uh, I believe it was the Assyrians, or it might have been the Syrians. It's, it's a shame that those names are so similar. But they were coming up against God's people, and God's people defeated them. And they said, oh, we, we now know that Yahweh is a God of the mountains. So they defeated us in the mountains, but we'll go down to the plain, and our God's a God of the plain, then we'll defeat them. Well, what happened? They lost in the plain too, didn't they? And they found out what? God's not just the God of the mountains like our God was. or not just the God of the plains like we thought our God was. God is the God of everything. But this is how they thought. There's a specific God for this area. There's a God that's good at this. And again, the question then becomes, what kind of God is your God? Who is he? What is he like? Well, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah of the Old Testament is a singular God. There is none like him. Because when you put Yahweh against Baal, the differences are obvious, okay? They're, they're totally different in nature and in the, what they're willing to do for humans. You can put the God of the Bible against Molech, against Marduk, against all of these other gods that we see in the Old Testament and any other member of the Canaanite or, or Babylonian or Greek or Roman pantheons that they would have had around at the time. And you will see that the God of the Bible is a God with an identity defined differently. He's just different. His nature is different. And he is defined by that name. Again, he's not just God, a God among all the other gods. He is the one true God. And so when we look at texts like Psalm 29, which is what we're looking at tonight, these psalms really serve to teach us about the nature of God. As, as people would sing these songs or sing this song and listen to the words of this song, they would learn about the nature of the Lord, about Yahweh, about Jehovah. This is the maker of earth. This is the maker of heaven. And this is who he is as he's revealing it to us through the words of this psalm. 
Well, what does Psalm 29 teach us about the nature of God? When we look at God and we say, okay, who is he? Who is this person that we have dedicated ourselves to serving and obeying? Um, I think as we walk through this, you're going to see an impressive picture that is built up here about the nature of God and really the power and glory of God. But I want to say before we discuss this, because uh, I, I humbly approach any time that I'm talking about the nature of God or who God is or how God is, um, because to some extent, God is unfathomable. Okay, God is unfathomable. That's a, one of those good Scrabble words if you can have all the letters. We cannot fully grasp God. And by that, I don't mean that God is unknowable, because the Bible says that we can know God. In fact, we must come to know God. And I don't mean that God is by nature confusing, because God is not the author of what? He's not the author of confusion, right? He, he doesn't create confusion. He creates order and goodness. So I don't mean to say that he's by nature confusing. But I think it's best described as I heard uh, Brother Dan Winkler, who's a great gospel preacher in the church, and several of you have probably heard him. He put it this way years ago. He said, if you can take your God and you can systematically reveal his nature and you can perfectly describe his attributes, say this is exactly who he is and what he does, and fully understand his ability to the point that you can essentially take him and wrap him up in a nice little box with a bow on top of it, then you can keep him. You can keep that God because I don't want a God that I can fully understand. Okay, and by that I mean a God that I have figured out. Because if I can figure God out, then we're what? We're equals, right? We're not talking about a God that we are equals with. We are talking about a God that is infinite, right? The transcendent God who is infinitely above us. Now, again, that sounds like he's very distant, and in some ways he is. But he's also the God that wants us to know him. He's revealed things about himself to us. So we can know God, but we have to be humble because we don't want a God that we can say, well, I have him figured out. I have him you know, down and I've got the list of who he is right here and I can put it in my pocket. No, you will never tame God. You'll never make him your God insofar as having him figured out. We always have to understand that he, to some extent, is unfathomable, and yet he uses language like we see in Psalm 29 to give us a picture, an image of who he is. And so humbly we approach this text, you know, we do it knowing that we can't fully speak to who God is, but in our weakness, where do we go? God's word. God's word we know is true, and it tells us something true about him. So let's break down this psalm kind of piece by piece here. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength, Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. First, we notice a command about the name of God. The first thing that the psalm says is give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. The God of the Bible, and this is something I think that we need to preach on more, that I don't hear talked about enough, but the God of the Bible is a God who is passionate about his own glory. The God of the Bible is passionate about his own glory. And that is distasteful to some people. When you say that, you go, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't really want to serve a God who's passionate about his own glory. And we know why, because we've met people who are passionate about their own glory. 
We've all met those people. We, we don't like to be friends with those people because a person that is obsessed with making their own name great is conceited, right? That's a selfish person. And yet we see over and over again in the Bible that the chief goal, and I believe that the chief goal of the work of God is the glory of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48. Note what God says here and really take this in. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. Context, he's talking about that he's not going to punish his people yet. He's going to relent. He's going to hold back. And he says, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, For my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned and I will not give my glory to another? If that is shocking to you, you need to read it again. Because that's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God that says, I do this for my glory. Okay, My glory is what's at stake and I will not give my glory to another. In that context, talking about another what? Another God. I will not give my glory to anyone else. What does it say? The Lord God is a jealous God. Jealous for what? Glory. His glory. If you looked at Ephesians chapter 1, I don't have it on the screen here, but Ephesians 1 talks about God's plan that spans from before the creation uh, all the way to the establishment of the church that's going to rule into eternity. And the constant refrain given is that the reason for it is to the praise of God's glory. Why did God build the church? For the praise of his glory. Why did he save us? For the praise of his glory. That's what we're going towards here. Even our fellowship with one another, and I'm talking about our interpersonal interactions, our family retreats, our our hugs that we share when we come together, that is for the glory of God. Look at Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 and verse 7. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us, what? To the glory of God. When people come in and see how much we love each other and how much compassion we have within this family of Christ, what should they do? Glorify God. It should ultimately all be to the glory of God. So God wants to be glorified in and by his creation. But it isn't out of conceit or vanity. Because that's pretty strong language that we've used so far, that God is passionate about his own glory, that it's all to his glory, that he will not give it to another. But it's not out of conceit or vanity or selfishness. And I'm going to give you three reasons why. One is because in glorifying God, we find our true purpose. We were made to glorify God. And that's why all people everywhere, if they do not worship God, what will they do? They'll worship something. They'll worship their their career. They'll worship their bank account. They'll worship sex. They'll worship drugs. They'll worship fame because we are made to be glorifying people. That's where we find our meaning. And I would say to you that our purpose, the true purpose of humanity, is to glorify God. It's what we were made to do. But number two, the reason that God isn't vain or conceited is because God is calling us to partake in his glory with him. And that's why I said earlier that when God says, I will not give my glory to another, he's talking about another God because he's promised us that at the end of time, when we reign forever with him in heaven, what will we be partakers in? 
His glory. We will share in the glory of God and Jesus for all eternity. So it's not selfish. It's for our sake. And number three, the reason it's not conceited or vain for God to desire his own glory is because he is a God who was willing to suffer and die the death of the cross for us, right? For his glory, because make no mistake about it, Jesus's death and resurrection brought the most glory that God will ever receive, and yet it was also for the sake of sinners like you and me, so that we could be saved. So God isn't vain or conceited. His glory is the most important thing in the universe. And so when the psalmist says, give the Lord glory due to his name, he means that God deserves nothing less than the praise of every tongue and the worship of all creation. That's what God deserves. That's what he's worthy of, and that's what he wants. That's what he desires for himself and for our sake. Look back at Psalm 29, 1 and 2. There's another interesting thing here. It says, worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. That word beauty there is very interesting to me. We've all heard that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And of course, some of us are more in the eye of the beholder than others, as we all know. Um, you know, beauty is subjective, right? We, we have those of us, like in my family, I have a very good looking wife and she makes up for me in that department, right? But beauty, because it's so subjective, uh, it becomes something that, again, we, we can't always agree on what's beautiful. We, we all have different opinions about what beauty is. But there are things in the world that almost just have this inherent beauty to them right when we go when we've gone in the past to the the church retreats in the mountains and you look out over the sunrise on those mountain hills and forests and the trees and the clouds it's just beautiful right it's just it's just inherently beautiful you look at a newborn baby right you you look at a bride on her wedding day as as she walks toward her groom all these things have this beauty in them but we don't often think about beauty when it comes to god Right? God, he's beautiful. Well, the holiness of God is beautiful. But that's exactly what the Bible says. And I believe that all the beauty we see in the world around us, everything from the hills, the mountains, the newborn baby, all of that beauty is just a reflection of the beauty of God. Right? Because it all comes from where? Him. He's the creator of each and every good thing. So any beauty that we see is a direct reflection of his beauty. And I believe that the beauty of heaven, in large part, yes, will it have streets of gold, that language is used, and, and, and jasper, and all these jewels that are in the gates and, and the walls, but what's the most beautiful thing in heaven? It's God. The, the beauty of God, the beauty of the holiness of God. And so I, I think it's amazing that the psalmist says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to behold the holiness of God. Let's go on to verse 3. It says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. When you think of water, there, there may be a variety of things that comes to mind. It may be memories of going to the lake or to the beach with your family. Uh, it may be memories of fishing in a backyard pond, you know, learning to swim one summer. All of these things may come to mind as you think of water, but that's not really the biblical portrayal of water. In the Bible, water is almost always tied to what? Destruction and death, right? Water is almost always tied to death. And we can think of examples of that, right? From the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, the destruction of the flood, even baptism, which is a new life, the forgiveness of sins, involves what? 
death. It's a death. It's a burial, right? And so water in the Bible is not always viewed as a positive thing. There's danger and death involved in water and the personification of water. Look at Psalm chapter 69. David later says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I've come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. The helpless feeling of drowning, right? I cannot get my bearing. The water is about to overtake me. And we see David saying in that language, the water of death, right? The water of struggle, the water of destruction. God save me from it. But what we see in Psalm chapter 29 is that the waters are no threat to the God of heaven. Water cannot threaten him, but instead his voice carries above the water and is personified in thunder, right? The voice of God thunders. And that brings two Old Testament accounts to my mind. First, look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. This is when Moses brought the children of Israel to the base of Mount Sinai, and they're about to come to the mountain of God's presence. It says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. I want you to think of this picture when you think of the presence of God. I want you to, you know, today was a pretty stormy, overcast day. It was totally gray in the sky above us. Imagine that that was black smoke, right? Black smoke just from the mere presence of God, and the presence of God calls causes thunder to peel out, and it causes earthquakes, right? That's the kind of God that we're talking about in this case. The Lord God of the Israelites is a God who strikes fear into the hearts of even his own people, right? These are God's people, and they're afraid of him. And the presence of God and his glory is like a storm, right? Thunder, clouds of smoke, all these things. And that reminds us of the prophet Jonah, right? Because Jonah, he said, I don't want to do what God tells me, so I'm going to flee from the presence of God. I'm going to get away from him. And what does he meet out on the sea? Storm, right? A storm of clouds and thunder, and he and those sailors experience the judgment of God. The judgment of God is coming upon them, and Jonah has to come clean and say, yep, it's me, and to stop this, you're going to have to throw me into the waters, right? The glory of God, the power of God, the fear of God that comes when his presence follows Jonah from where Jonah thought he could leave it behind, and yet he cannot escape from God. So what does this tell us, right? It tells us that the voice of God is powerful, that the voice of God speaks with authority that causes everything, the entire world, the earth itself trembles at the voice of God. But the voice of the Lord doesn't stop in water and thunder. If we go on to verse 5 of Psalm 29, I might have put 27 in because that's what I have on here. Uh, go to Psalm uh, chapter 29, 5 through 7, if you can pull that up. I know it's wrong on there because I have it wrong on here. <clears throat> but what we're going to see here is that God, his voice again, personified as thunder and over the waters. And here it says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. When you think of the cedars of Lebanon, what do you think about? Massive trees. I think about the redwoods that we have out on the West Coast, right? I've never seen those in my eyes. I hope I get to before I die. 
But you imagine these massive trees. And we've all seen a tree break in a storm, right? Some of you have probably watched it with your eyes. But you can't think of a redwood bending over in a storm. But it says, before God, those things break. They jump like cattle, right? They, they jump around. They're jumpy. They're falling down. It even says, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. It's as if the voice of God can carve and hew and shape flame, right? Because it can. No man can do that. No force of nature can do that. And yet God can. And it goes to show us that the voice of God as it goes forth, it has this double property because on one hand, it can build things up. It can create, but it can also destroy. It can destroy strongholds. It cuts men to the heart. And that's what we think of when we think of the book of Hebrews chapter four, right? We think about the fact that it says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The double-edged sword is because this is the only book that can tell us how we can be saved, but on the other hand, we have to give an account to the one who gave us these words. So it, it can be the best thing ever for you, or it can be your absolute assured destruction. And so the voice of God has that dual nature. It creates and it destroys. It just depends where you find yourself. Let's continue into verse 8. It says, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, Glory. When you think about the wilderness, especially when you're in the Old Testament, and I think about the wilderness, my mind goes to the failure of the Israelites, the, the failure to enter the land of Canaan when God had given it to them on a silver platter. The wilderness represented everything that Israel got wrong after God brought them out of Egypt. It represented their flaws, their failings, and they faced some of the greatest terrors of their national history in the wilderness at the hand of God. God tested them and tried them and punished them during their time in the wilderness. In fact, it was at the wilderness in Kadesh Barnea, the one that's referenced here, that the 12 tribes actually saw the fruit of the land. They saw that it was massive and it was good, and yet they were still faithless. They refused to enter. They wouldn't go. And it was later at Kadesh when God told Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. And he did what? He struck it, right? Same place that's referenced here. So all the failure and sin that's tied to the wilderness and specifically the location of Kadesh. In the moments of our failure, and we all have those moments where we fail and we do something that we know isn't right and we, we fall into that same sin again that we struggle with. And, and during those moments, we feel that God is the farthest away that he's ever been from us, right? That's when God is eons away. We've separated ourselves so far from him. But God is God of the mountain. He's God of the valleys. He's God when we're faithful, and he's still God when we're faithless. And even the wilderness, which represented, again, this failure, this, this sin that Israel and Moses committed, even there, God speaks, God is still God in the wilderness. He's still God at the spot of our worst failure. And it's that for that reason that we can call on him, that we can trust in him to know that he will forgive us because he's waiting just where we left him. He's waiting right there for us to return to him. And so 
that comfort that we have must come from the even in the wilderness that when we wander into sin, God is still with us. But we have to balance that with a healthy respect because it says here again that the voice of God, the voice of the Lord sends animals into premature labor. If it seems weird to you, it says makes the deer give birth. That's what we're implying here. Premature labor, right? The fear of God makes these, these deer go into labor. And then it says that the, the voice of God strips the forest bare. And you, I want you to imagine that in your mind. You think of a forest with all these trees and every single one of them, the leaves are all gone right? Just dead, bare trees. And it says that that is what God is capable of. And yet you see at the end there, it says, and in the temple, everyone says glory. We look at the power of God, the destruction of God, all of these things that he has, and yet we don't look at it with fear, right? Because we would fear those things if we were enemies of God, but we're not enemies of God. If we're his children, if we're his people, it doesn't give us fear. It gives us confidence, that we serve a God capable of doing these things. Now, if you followed along with the picture of Psalm 29 so far, and I haven't said it explicitly, but I think you can put kind of these pieces together and see that what causes the thunder to happen? What causes the waters to churn? What causes trees to fall down? What strips the forest bare of its leaves? What are we talking about? the voice of God, and it's like a storm, right? A storm is what would do that in, these, in our world, right? A storm is what knocks trees down, the thunder comes with the storm. And in Psalm 29, we see the picture of the voice of God as a storm, right? That's the kind of power, and we all are familiar with that power as they would have been. We have a picture of that in our mind. It's a storm of cloudy glory that sweeps the landscape so that all things are at its mercy, right? We're all at the mercy of the power of the voice of God. But there's a great irony in that fact. The fact that it's drawing God's glory and his power into the picture of a storm is a great irony. And here's what that is. What kind of God was Baal supposed to be? Do you know? Baal was a god of storms, right? Baal was the storm god. He was the one who rides on the clouds, is what they called Baal. And he was the one that sent rain and thunder. He was the one that brought harvest with rain and destroyed it with a bad storm and hail. Uh, He had dominion over all the elements. That's what they thought of when they thought of Baal. And all the ancient world knew that Baal was a storm god. And isn't it interesting that as history moved forward, the main god of whatever pantheon you have is always what? It's a thunder god, right? You have Zeus. uh, You have these these thunder gods that tend to be the head honcho. And that's what Baal was in the Canaanite sense. But Baal is not the true god of storms. Baal isn't the thunder god, right? The true god of storms is the god of everything. The god who holds ultimate sovereignty, Yahweh, the Lord, which we repeat over and over again in this psalm. He is the god of storms. He is the one that judges everything through the storm. And it's the end of, at the end of this psalm that David invokes the greatest event of God's judgment through the storm. Right? Go to verse 10. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The perfect practical application of Psalm 29 is seen in the picture of God presiding over the flooded earth, earth totally covered by water, a God who will put to death every human on the earth, save eight, to destroy and judge sin that is an affront to his holiness. He was God over the flood. He was king back then, and he is king forever. No one can endanger his rule. No one can stand against him. That's the kind of God that he is. 
But what does that mean for us? Well, what it means for us is what happens in the very last verse of this psalm. In verse 11, it says, The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. We come through all this psalm to see a terrifying God in some ways, a God who is, is, is hungry for his own glory. He wants glory. He wants all the world to know him, and he is powerful enough to destroy whatever stands in front of him with his voice. And what that means for us is when God says, I'm on your side, we can take it to the bank, and we can be confident, and we don't have to fear anything because the Lord will give strength his people. The strength that is the storm of God, the strength at Mount Sinai, the strength of the storm uh, when Jonah was on the sea and the storm that brought the flood, that's the strength that God wants to give to us. That's the strength that lets us know that we've already won. There's no waiting. Again, the the Facebook picture I see of Jesus and Satan in an arm wrestling match. I wonder who's going to win. I just hope that Jesus can pull it out. No, we've already won. (laughs) Satan can't defeat God. Sin can't defeat holiness. And this gives us confidence that the Lord will bless us with peace. And so it all goes back, Ronald, again, always mentions that David's confidence, right? His confidence that he knows that no matter what happens, God is with us. And that takes us right back to the start of the psalm. What do we do? We give glory to the name of God. We worship God and say, there's no God like him. There's no God like you, no God that is this powerful and yet loves us and cares for us and wants to save us. We've run out of time to to get to the last part of what I had tonight, but I'm going to mention it just briefly. When we think of God in these cases of these psalms, our mind almost inherently flips a switch and, and assumes that we're just talking about God the Father, okay? God the Father is a, the judgment God. He's the, the wrathful God. Uh, he, he's the creator God. He's the God of the Old Testament. So this is talking about God the Father. But I want to assure you that everything attributed in this psalm to God the Father can also be attributed to who? Jesus. God the Son, right? In fact, if we were going to go through this, you could go to Philippians 2 and look where it talks about because of what Jesus was willing to do, God has given him a name which is above every name. We talked about the glory of the name of God, right? God's given Jesus a name so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, at the end of that verse, we could go on and talk about the fact that Jesus, the beauty of beholding his holiness, John says in John chapter one, we beheld him as the, on, the, as the, of the only begotten of the father of grace and truth, the beauty of Jesus. We could look at Jesus' power over creation. In fact, there's only one man who ever calmed the storm. It was Jesus, right? There's only one man that could ride on the unbroken colt of a donkey, and just ride it into town, right? There's only one man that could literally curse a tree and strip it bare with the, the power of his word. That is Jesus. And the truth is, as much as we should fear God, we serve a fearful Savior. We do. And we have to remember that and respect not only the Father, but the power of the Son and the glory that he deserves as well. Thank you all for your time.